Well, good morning. Almost 50 years ago, a very well-known psychiatrist, his name was Carl Menninger, he, he wrote a book. And the book was a kind of a groundbreaking book. It's strange you would find a book coming, like, uh, coming from a psychiatrist like this, but the title was, Whatever Became of Sin? 50 years ago, it was 1973. He wrote as a, a medical doctor, which he was. He was not a prophet. He wasn't a religious man. But he... This is what he projected the day would come when sin would no longer be a part of our human language. He speculated that sin and wrongdoing would be replaced by rationalizations excusing individuals from accountability. He predicted that the term sin would be replaced by terms such as Illness, disorder, dysfunction, syndrome. And that sin would be regarded as a product of biochemistry, the way your body works, your environment, your parents, your experiences, or the traumas that you go through. No longer would um, there be any liability for human error, human choice, or willful conduct. Everyone would be innocent. Vindicated, all sin would be eliminated because you could blame it all on biology or psychiatry or some other kind of reasoning. That's what he predicted 50 years ago. And now we have arrived. He was right. Um, this is a poll taken in 2018, just two years ago or so. 67% of Americans believe that they are sinners. That's... Okay, but you know what that means. 33% of people that you see, one-third of all the people you see in America, said, oh, I'm not a sinner. Not at all. This is another poll. This is a George Barna poll. 64% of Americans believe they're going to heaven. And, catch this one, 0.005% that means basically nobody, nobody believes they're going to be sent to hell. You will not lay eyes on anyone all day, today, or maybe tomorrow, or the next day, who believes they're going to hell. Nobody. There's no one in America, hardly today, anymore. Of course, we don't believe in hell. That's probably why. But Menninger, a psychiatrist, predicted that we're going to do away with the concept of sin. And... We're doing it. Many of the th- behaviors, the attitudes that the Bible says are wrong are no longer considered wrong in our society. But of course, we've manufactured a few new sins to put on the list. But we've taken many away from the biblical list. Now, have you ever asked yourself the question, why? Why, why is it that we as human beings in this society are getting rid of the concept of sin. It just seems so patently obvious. Um, I have children, I have five children, I have 11 grandchildren, and they're wonderful, but they're naughty. I mean, for no reason at all, they will punch somebody. 
They will always act in their own self-interests. They will, they will often lie. They don't, children don't come out of the womb saying thank you or please or I'm sorry. None of that. All of that has to be taught because it is not natural to children to show gratitude for all the graces given to them or to ask favors. It's just not there. Why? What is it about our society that, we have, that we've strayed so far and so fast from the Bible? Why is it that morality in America, especially in the sexual realm, has changed so radically and so rapidly in the last few years? Why is it that we evangelicals who believe in the Bible, we too are just mirroring our society's views? Why? What's gone wrong? Why have we so readily just conformed ourselves to the idea that people are basically good? Well, I've asked myself that question. And it seems to me that the heart of the problem is that we have failed to understand, to preach, and to teach what the Bible says about who we are as human beings. Someone wrote this. All heresy, that means all wrong thinking about the Bible, all of it comes from a wrong view of who we are as human beings. If you ask most people, what goes wrong with people's thinking about God? They say, well, they don't understand God. Or they don't understand Jesus. Or they don't understand salvation. And I would say none of that is the core. Because once you mess up who we are, you mess up everything. Once you mess up who we are, then we start to create God in our own image. We turn Jesus into a really good guy. We earn our way to heaven and everything is messed up. The key is, who do we think we are? That's the key. Someone wrote this. He was a, 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 a seminary professor. I have long told my graduate students that the doctrine of humanity is by far the most pressing doctrine of our day in regard to culture. And this is another one, an, an, an English bishop. He wrote this. There are few errors and false doctrines of which the beginning may not be traced to unsound views about the corruption of human nature. Wrong views of the disease will always bring with them wrong views of the remedy. Wrong views of the corruption of human nature will always carry with them wrong views of the great antidote and the cure for that corruption. Did you know that what the Bible teaches about us as human beings is unique? I've studied all the 12 classic religions and I've taught philosophy. There is no philosophy that I'm aware of and there's no one of the classic religions, none of them, that share what the, what the Bible teaches about who we are as Christians. Our, who we are not as Christians, as human beings. The Bible's view of who we are as human beings is way higher than any philosophy or any religion in the world. Way higher. And what the Bible teaches about us as human beings is way lower 
than any other philosophy or any other religion. And you've got to keep them both in your grasp at the same time. John Stott, he was the Queen Elizabeth's pastor in England before he passed away. He says this, Scripture responds in a balanced way by speaking of both our glory and of our shame. There is in human beings both a unique dignity because we are creatures made in the image of God and a unique depravity because we are sinners sinners under the judgment of God. And it is very important for the Christian mind to keep the two together. In fact, the Christian mind depends on keeping the two together. If you do not understand what the Bible says about who you are, the good side and the bad side, you will not be able to think Christianly in our world today. It's impossible. And I would submit to you that it is perhaps the most important issue in our lives today. The problem is, Christians are a mess. <laughs> how far are we a mess? Let me tell you how far we are. This is a 2020 poll. This is last year. 46% of evangelicals, those are people like ourselves who believe in the Bible, 46%, that means one half of every evangelical you've ever seen in America today believes this statement. Quote, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Half of evangelicals believe that. Brothers and sisters, that is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, what the Bible teaches is we sin a lot, not a little. And none of us are good by nature. No, not so much as even one. None of us. So we've got a, a lot of work to do. This is Charles Swindoll. You and I are by birth, by nature and by choice, inwardly depraved, which is to say that we are entirely corrupt. That is not to say that we don't have good in us. We do. However, anything good in us has been tainted with evil. It touches everything. Without the redeeming power of Christ, we cannot halt our moral slide. We need Jesus. So today, we're going to look at a passage which is probably the most negative passage about human nature in all of the Bible. It comes at the end of Paul's three whole chapters in which he has tried his best to tell his readers in Rome, the central city of the world back then, the only city in the world of over a million people, the main hub of all the world at the time. He's trying to show them how much we need Jesus but we live in a culture today in which there's no, people says, we don't need Jesus. You say to someone, well, God loves you. They go, duh, of course he does. I'm a good person. Why would God not love me? Well, God does love us. That is true. But it's not because of our goodness. It's because of his grace. It's because of his character, not our character. But we mess this one up. Everything else we believe is going to be destroyed. All of it. 
We must understand who we are. So the Apostle Paul, very meticulously, remember he started with the typical Roman. And he said, the typical Roman, you fall short of God's glory because your sin, your turning away from God, sets you on a path of devolution, not evolution. And then he turns to morally good people. As you know, there are many morally good people around us. People who don't believe in God or maybe people of other religions. They are very good people. They're moral people. And then he destroys this idea that you can be moral enough to be good with God. But then he turns to the religious people, like the Jewish people. And he shows how religion falls incredibly short of what God demands of us. So he's attacked those who are just like secularists. He's attacked the moralists. He's attacked the religionists. And now he finally says, okay, let me sum it all up. And that's our text today. It's found in Romans chapter 3. And we're going to look at um, a a whole variety of verses, verses that are going to tell us about um, uh, who we are in summary. This is chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 9. Now what the Apostle Paul is going to do, first of all, he's going to give us a summary statement. And he's going to summarize all that he said in the previous three chapters. And then he's going to try to prove it, quoting the Old Testament. He's going to give nothing original. He's going to give quote after quote after quote after quote from the Old Testament. Because remember, he's writing to both Jews and Gentiles. People, especially the Jews, people say, well, I'm religious. I'm good. I'm good with God because I've been circumcised and I follow the law of God. And he's going to say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not going to cut it. So he's going to put us all in the same category. He's going to show that human sinfulness is universal. And then he's going to, lest people disagree with that, he's going to say, okay, let me just highlight three parts of your anatomy. Your mouth, your feet, and your eyes. And then he's going to bring it to conclusion. He's going to begin with a summary statement. Here it is. Romans 3, 9. What shall we conclude then? After chapters talking about the Romans, the morally morally good people, and the religious people, what should we conclude then? Do we, Jews, have any advantage? Are we on a different level because we have the law of Moses, or because we've been circumcised, or because we go to the temple? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Wow. Our problem is, as human beings, there's something inside all of us, and it's powerful. It enslaves us. And that power is sin. Tony Evans, the the well-known pastor in the Dallas area, wrote, the whole world is guilty before God. Now, this is something that is taught to us throughout the whole Bible, but many people don't even believe it. The truth is, we're all guilty before God. Well, the Jewish people would say, well, yeah, those those Gentiles, they're guilty before God, but we're not. We have the law. We have the temple. We have circumcision. We have the promises of God. We're the chosen people. We have the promised land. And the Apostle Paul is now going to say, let's take a look at the Jewish 
scriptures. So everything he's going to say now for the next several verses, all of it, are quotes from the Old Testament. Here's where he starts. As it is written, that's verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Did you get it? Seven times. That's the number of perfection. Seven times. It's like God said, I'm going to be perfectly clear. No one, no one, no one, no one, no one, no one, no one. There is no one who's righteous. Not so much as even one. The first one, there is no one righteous. He takes that quote from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. And this is what that verse says. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what, it's, what is right and never sins. There's no one. Then he says, there is no one who understands. That's from Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3. And that reads as follows. The fool is said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, to see if there are any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's Psalm 14. Well, There's not one human being who on our own seeks after God. There's not one human being who does good enough to merit God's salvation. There's not one. Sin is universal. Nine times in verses 9 to 12, the Apostle Paul mentions that sin has affected all of us. No one is innately good. No one naturally has a right relationship with God. There is no one who is morally or spiritually innocent. We talk about children oftentimes. We say, oh, my child is so innocent. Well, uh, in a sense, they're certainly way more innocent than we are as adults. That's certainly true. But one of the unique features of the Bible, it says that we are born with a sin nature. Our bent is not toward God. Our bent is toward ourselves. And the Bible calls that sin. The whole of our being is controlled by sin, Warren Wearsby wrote. His mind, his heart, and his will. So what is the implication of that? One of the things that we are accused of as Christians, and we are rightly accused because we are wrong, is we're accused that you think you're better than we are. If you are a Christian and you think that you are better than anyone else, I'm here to tell you, you are wrong. We have no right as Christians to think that we are better than anyone else. Someone has wisely said, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Not a one of us stands higher than another person. We all have fallen, we all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Not just people who do things that we think are bad, we have too. Which is, 
We, that's, one, that's why we as Christians should be able to extend God's grace to anyone and to everyone. We should be the least judgmental of people because we believe deeply that we've all sinned. None of us sought after God. God sought after us. We did not find God because we were good. God found us in our sin. It's different. It's amazing. Well, someone might say, well... Not me. So Paul's going to say, oh, not you. Well, let me just take a little look at three parts of your body. I'm going to look at your mouth. And then I'm going to look at your feet. And then I'm going to look at your eyes. Just three parts. The Bible says that we're, our whole body has been affected by sin. It's been infected. We have a cancer. It's called sin. But Paul says, let me just show you three parts of your body. He begins appropriately with our mouths. Verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Did you catch the progression? It starts here, goes here, and out. James James is Jesus' brother. That's his half-brother. He wrote something like this. He says, There is not a single person who can tame your tongue. If anyone could tame your tongue, you would be a perfect person. Because the tongue is the mind's tattletale. It's always tattling about us. A perfect mouth is a mouth that is constantly used, never used any other way than to build people up in Christ. All you say are words that are of truth and love. But that's not what we use our mouths for. And we religious people are very guilty of misusing this part of our bodies. If you want to know where sin most manifests itself in the church, it's here. I call the mouth the murder weapon of choice in the church. This is how we kill people. We kill each other with, the, with this, this, little, this little gun right here. It's powerful. It's a machine gun. It's, a, it's an AK-47. It really will kill. That's what the Bible says. Paul says, oh, let me quote from the Old Testament. And, and what he quotes from, he quotes from Psalm 5, verse 9. This is what it says. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. And with their tongue, they speak deceit. James, again, Jesus' brother says, we stumble in many ways. And we as human beings are incredibly gifted in the image of God. We can tame wild animals. In fact, Jerry was telling me today about uh, taming a wild horse. We can tame wild animals, but we cannot tame our own tongues. Our tongues are constantly being used for things that are bad. And after he goes to our, 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 our tongues, he turns to our feet. Here's verses 15 to 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. He uses the, the feet as a metaphor for our actions. Not only do we use our mouths, do our mouths tell about the, the sin that is in our hearts, but our feet, our actions, oftentimes betray who we, we really are. 
And then he turns to the eyes. The last thing he says is, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. We live our lives looking with our beautiful eyes at all kinds of things, but we don't live our lives understanding the true and living God. This is the Proverbs, chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to God. Haughty eyes, you see it there? A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness, back to the mouth, who pours out lies, and a man who stirs dissension among brothers. Every, we use every part of our bodies to rebel against the word and the will of God. Every part of our body, every part of our nature has been twisted and tainted by sin. The part we inherited and the part we have chosen. What is ours by nature and what is ours by choice. All of it has been tainted by sin. So, what's the bottom line? Here it is, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sights, sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. There's the conclusion. Not a single, first of all, every one of us should have our mouths completely silenced with duct tape because every single one of us will be held accountable before God and not a single one, no matter what we have done, how we've lived our lives, will be declared righteous in God's sight. Tony Evans, who I mentioned before, he said this, think of the law as a mirror that shows you who you really are. While a mirror reveals your messed up hair, you don't pull the mirror off the wall and brush your hair with it. Mirrors don't fix anything. They show us what needs fixing. The law was not designed to fix you. The law was designed to reveal to you what needs fixing. And almost all religions come up with these laws that they believe will fix people. But mirrors don't fix people. Mirrors simply show us who we are. We need something outside of ourselves to fix us. So, the question we should always ask ourselves whenever we look at the Bible is the question, so what? What difference does this make to the way I live? Well, let me try to answer that question as we conclude. Number one, our sin, our personal sin, is much deeper and much wider than we can ever even imagine. Remember the word of Jesus himself, our Lord Jesus, when he was here on this earth, he said these words, here is God's standards, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. There's the standard. 
I mean, that's an incredible verse. And when you look at the life of Jesus, he constantly takes God's standards and, and, and raises them to unimaginably high proportions that no one can even, no one who has even an ounce of honesty can ever believe that you fulfill God's standards. It's impossible because the standard is perfection. Did you ever think about it? What if God graded on a curve? What's, what's his curve? A bell curve? What's he going to pick? 97%? 92%? You get an A? Well, if he allows any sin into heaven, we destroy the place. It's not possible for heaven to, be, to have any of us who have sinned there. The only hope we have of heaven is perfection. How in the world do we get there? Well, we're certainly not going to get there by our own merits. We're not going to get there by our track record. We're not going to get there by religion. How are we going to get there? You see, sin has infiltrated our nature. It has twisted our bodies. It has messed up our DNA. It has screwed up our hardwiring. It has messed up our emotions, our consciences, our motives, our minds. Not only do we do lots of things that are wrong, they're all the right things we should do that we don't do. We sang a song this, this morning about every second being used for God's glory. Do, do you do that? Do I do that? Are you kidding? That's not even close to true. You see, the problem is we become, after, we become very quickly as human beings very comfortable with our sin. That's the reality. This is Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago, the Nobel Prize winner. He said this, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it, was necessary, and, it was, and it were necessary only to separate them from us and destroy them. In other words, if only we could find the bad people and lock them away. But then he wrote, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. William Golding, who wrote the, the Lord of the Flies, said this, humans manufacture evil the way a bee makes honey. Or C.S. Lewis said this, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore you know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. And as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Our sin is much wider, much deeper than we have any conception of at all. And apart from the quickening of the Holy Spirit, human beings are spiritually dead. Thus, our only hope of salvation is that our, our deliverer, our liberator, our emancipator, our redeemer would come from outside because it's not going to come from inside ourselves. Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, he says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. By the Bible's definition, we as human beings are zombies. We are spiritual zombies. That means 
Spiritually dead people walking. We're dead men walking. That's what we are. Biblically, apart from what God does to us, we're spiritually dead people. We're people with a spirit, but our spirit is dead because of our sin. But we're alive and we're walking. We're zombies is who we are. Our only hope is that God will be merciful to us. And thankfully, he is. The term that the, the theologians use to describe us as human beings is that we're, we're, we're depraved. And that's, that word is not one that, that we like to use today because it has false connotations. That doesn't mean that everyone's bad or everyone does bad things all the time. That is not true. But what it does mean is that every part of our nature has been affected by sin. Every part. Our minds, our motives, our emotions, our will, our spirit, all of it has been affected infected by the cancer of sin. Which brings me to one of my most important points. Because of our sin nature, human hearts are desperately deceivable. This is the prophet Jeremiah. He wrote this. The heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? The heart is the most deceptive, deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? In other words, we don't. Oh, you probably have read the diary of Anne Frank, this marvelous young girl who was... Um, of course, Jewish, and put in, had to go into hiding, and then eventually caught, put into a concentration camp, and she wrote a diary. This is what she wrote in her diary. Despite everything, I believe that people are really good at heart. And within months of writing that, she was executed in a concentration camp. That's sad. We live in a society today in which the, I would say the main mantra of America today is follow your heart. Which means, of course, follow your emotions. Follow your sense of who you think you are. Follow your heart. And then to do so is then considered authentic. Not to do so is considered inauthentic. But the Bible would tell us, no, no, be careful. Your heart is fickle. Your heart will deceive you. Your heart will change over time. I, some years ago, I, I was watching the movie called King David. I don't know if any of you saw it. Starring Richard Gere, who plays David in the movie. It was not well regarded in the theaters, but I watched it and I have a copy of it. I've watched it many times. When I watch the movie, it's just kind of weird because he depicts the prophets in the movie as kind, of, as kind of bad people. And it wasn't until the last scene that I realized what he was doing. David is dying and he's on his deathbed and he calls for his son Solomon just before he dies. And this is what he says. My son, I'm about to go the way of all flesh. I have one thing to say to you before I die. And in the movie, here are David's last words. My son... Follow your heart and do not listen to the words of the prophets. 
And with that, David died. Well, if you know anything about the Bible, anything about the story of David, when he followed his heart, hundreds and thousands of people died. His only way of saving people's lives was to follow the words of the prophets. Here, Richard Guerin, the makers of that movie, had taken the truth of God's word, turned it 180 degrees opposite of the Bible, pawned it off as the truth of God's Bible, and it could not be farther from the truth. And besides, that's where David's life became a mess, and many, many, many people died when he followed his heart. He was only saved when he followed the words of the prophets. The Bible would say, no, the truth of the matter is we need some source of grace, truth, and love outside of ourselves to tell us what is true, what is authentic, because our hearts are easily deceived. No, don't follow your heart. That's not good advice. And because of who we are as human beings, political structures must be made such that we know that every human heart, including every church, should be put together this way. Every human heart, every pastor, every politician, every leader is corruptible. And that's why Lord Acton made that famous statement, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are seldom ever good men. Why? Because power tends to accelerate the evil of the human heart. Power and money does that to us. And so to give people unbridled power in the church or in any institution is a great danger. Why? Because of the human heart. And so the founders of our nation realized that there must be the separation of powers lest too much power becomes concentrated in any one place and it will destroy us. Don't do it. The truth is we can't save ourselves. All and any attempts to save ourselves are futile because we need a Savior. And so the Apostle Paul has devoted three chapters in his greatest writing ever, Romans, to try to show us how much we need Jesus. And he's our only hope. Our hope is not to be found in our following our hearts. It's not to be found in any kind of religious rites or rituals. It's not to be found in trying to follow the law because it doesn't work. It is to be found in A, acknowledging the truth of who we really are. God is going to ask that we are honest. B, that we believe that God has provided for us in Jesus a substitute, a righteous, pure, sinless substitute for our sin, whose merits Cover all that we need to stand before God righteous. And see, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. One of the songs that I'm sure you've heard and sung and you love is the one, It Is Well With My Soul. My favorite line in that song goes like this. 
my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin. Not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us as you do way, way beyond what we deserve. Perhaps the greatest thing of all is that you didn't get rid of us. We're all rebels without a cause. We all seek our own good rather than yours, your glory. We've all fallen short. But that didn't dissuade you from not only loving us, but sacrificing your own son for us, the greatest gift the world could ever imagine, much less receive. Oh, I pray, Heavenly Father, that all of us in this place this morning will accept that gift and for the rest of our lives live in light of it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me now as we go from this place. Let me make up a blessing. May God bless us. Because we are people who realize that we have been blessed. Not because we deserve it, but because God is good. God bless you.